Welcome to my world, supporting someone with an eating disorder. This is a podcast about and for those supporting someone suffering from an eating disorder. These are my personal opinions and experiences gathered from being married to someone in recovery from an eating disorder. And this podcast is brought to you by Living Proof MN. Never underestimate your ability to recover. Now I'm going to tell you a little story. Melissa came home from college just the other night. She stated that she had needed to take a semester off from school because she was getting stressed and sick. Today, she sits at the dining table in her parents' home. Her younger brother sits next to her. Her parents watch her, uncertain what to think as she appears so much thinner than when she left for school. They know that something is wrong, but they don't know what that something is. As they say grace, her mom appears over her setting at Melissa. Last night, she didn't eat. She was ill and stayed in her bedroom the entire night. Now she sits at the table. She appears almost fearful and timid. When they began pacing the dish, passing the dishes around the table, Melissa passed them to her little brother without taking anything. And when pressed, she abruptly stated she wasn't hungry. Her dad told her she ought to eat something because it'll help her feel better. Those words struck Melissa harshly. She knows that he didn't mean anything by them, but nonetheless, those words hit her in the chest hard. Her mind awash, with sudden anxiety and her palms sweaty, she asked to be excused and suddenly returned to her room. Melissa's parents don't quite understand what's happening. They know she is struggling, but they don't know why. And they don't know what to do for her. They talk all night between the, themselves and conclude that she must, be, she must have an eating disorder. The next day at breakfast, they insist that she eats something. She picks at her food, but she never really eats more than a spoonful or two of anything because excusing... And then excusing herself and disappearing again to her room. Later that evening, her mom hears a noise from her room. And when she opens the door, she sees Melissa doing sit-ups on the floor. She suddenly stops and retreats, Melissa that is, back to her bed. And her mom sits beside her and pushes for an explanation. But Melissa gets crass and shuts her down before lying down and putting on her ear headphones. This scene is not all uncommon. Maybe Melissa refuses to leave the house or seems unmotivated to do anything with the family, seems closed in on herself and ignores everyone else. For someone suffering with a restrictive eating disorder, they will do things like exercise in private. They may not eat anything offered them, check packages for caloric accounts, or eat nothing but vegetables, given the appearance that it's a healthy choice, but they are usually things with very little nutritional value or calories. It is difficult when people get roped into diets that count calories and constantly measure foods and don't count vegetables against your regimen. This seems like a healthy way of managing your food intake, but it can also lead people down a dark and dangerous road. The person struggling might become preoccupied with counting calories and staying away from anything they cannot account for the caloric intake. And it is not simply about managing their food intake either. Eating disorders are a mental health issue and they are dangerous. They need to be addressed as such and it is not an element as elementary as just eating in moderation or eating just a little. Mental health disorders, if not treated appropriately, can be very dangerous and lead to irrevocable damage to one's own body, affecting their overall physical and mental health. They know for the most part that there may be an issue, but like those addicted to drugs or alcohol, they can't just switch their behavior and feel a loss of control over themselves. 
If you haven't listened to my inaugural episode, you may not understand that among all mental health disorders, just behind that of opioid addiction, eating disorders have the second highest rate of mortality. This isn't common knowledge, which is why most people don't understand eating disorders. It's always amazed me how many pediatricians and other medical professionals, those we trust with the health of our own children to, or our loved ones and our partners, that they don't even know how to recognize an eating disorder, much less diagnose one. And when it comes to treating eating disorders, we just aren't, and we are just given a card for one of the local treatment facilities and sent on our way. Don't get me wrong. There's a place for these treatment facilities, but per their own mission structure, they only deal with severe uh, disorders and many times will turn away those who may just be in the early stages of eating disorders. To their defense, the variables of eating disorders are vast and complex, and many times more so than addictions, where the chemical processes that involve the use of illicit drugs are far more predictable than the intricacies of an eating disorder behavior. Though sometimes there is crossover between the two, and that said, it is my belief that these treatment facilities' model of care and program construct are wrong for the majority of these seeking help. I believe this is the reason for so many return cases, what is commonly referred to by those patients as the revolving doors of the facility. You just can't treat these affected, those affected by eating disorders with a single rubber stamp model of care. Individually, their causes and traumas leading to the disorders are different and often nearly impossible to figure out. And if they, the client, is not ready, if they've been pushed to treatment by family and are just not in a place where they can accept their own responsibility for the management of their disorder, they will not be successful in their recovery. There must be a better way. But I am afraid that for most, the current mode of treatment only sets up those affected for failure. You cannot simply restore their weight, point out everything they are doing wrong, how much they are hurting their loved ones, and show them the door without empowering them to live their best lives without the skills to do just that and not have the available aftercare programs outside of the sterile facility. Support groups and peer-to-peer -peer mentoring are important. Those struggling know that they are sick. They know what they've done to themselves, either directly or indirectly. They need blind support. No judgment, no punishments. They need to be inspired. They need encouragement, and they need skills to live their best lives. We as supporters for those struggling often are left feeling lost. Where do we turn? How do we support them? How do we help them? They need to be able to trust us, trust that we won't reprimand or penalize them. They need to know that we aren't assessing them all the time by what they want, but what they want. Excuse me. They need to know that we aren't assessing them all the time, but that we want to just be there and hold them sometimes. That we aren't afraid to hear what they may want to say without repercussion. We may never understand what they are feeling, what they are going through, and that must be okay. But we can be there for them anyway, when they need us, when they want us to help them, when they need someone just to be close to and know that we will show regardless of how much or how much we don't understand. And again, I've said it before, we just need to be there and listen. When they are ready, when they are 
in need of help, they will tell us what is wrong. And they will do that if we know we are there to support them no matter what. This podcast was brought to you by Living Proof MN. We are all worth it. For more information, you may go to www.livingproofmn.com. Until next time, love and be loved. Thank you.